Welcome to a new episode of On the Flight Line. I'm Marcus Gropel. Um, before we introduce our guest for the show today, I want to welcome back to the show um, for our episode one guest, Mr. Dave Wensley. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Marcus. Good to see you here. <laughs> Anything new? <laughs> Anything here? new? <laughs> <laughs> Got to do it all over again. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but now, but now, we're going to introduce our main guest of the show today. He's worked on manned space programs, launch site activations at Vandenberg and at Kennedy Space Center as well. Please welcome Mr. Don Nichols. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, um, I understand you drove all the way from Lompoc, right? That's correct. So, so how did you end up there at Lompoc? Well, I had spent most of my working career with NASA at Kennedy Space Center, and my final job at Kennedy was development of the uh, space shuttle uh, from a launch perspective, input on the flight hardware, and then the construction of the launch base itself to accommodate the space shuttle. And uh, shortly after that, Vandenberg was directed to build space shuttle facilities for orbital flights north and south, whereas from Kennedy we go east and west east, launches. Uh -huh. And uh, being an Air Force project with a Corps of Engineers doing major construction and contractors who were looking to make all they could out of it, somehow the equipment we had developed at Kennedy just weren't quite right for Vandenberg. So they started almost fresh, but with a facility that had been built earlier for an Air Force program, which compromised the design so they very quickly got behind schedule, way over budget, and so there was a decision made to uh, send someone out from Kennedy Space Center to do a review of their program, and I came out and did that with uh, several of my guys, and the result of that was that uh, NASA was requested to provide a, a, an expert, supposedly, mm -hmm. uh, for the construction, and so I came out here as as the technical technical director of the space program at Vandenberg. And uh, that's how I ended up out here, and I ended up, uh, through a number of circumstances, staying. Oh, really? So then no other place, you know, that's where you call home, huh? For how many years now have you called that home? Came out here in 84, uh, 84 and 85 was my commitment as the, as the aerospace, uh, as the director as the technical director for the shuttle. And at the end of that period of time, I was to go back to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, and instead, arrangements were made somewhere way over my head for me to stay out and take over the Aerospace Corporation function at Vandenberg. And so I did that for 14 more years until I retired. Wow. So um, are you originally from California or were you are you East Coast? No, I'm, I'm East Coast. Um, when I got out of college, though, my first job was out here in Los Angeles working at North American Aviation. And as a brand new graduate from college, my first job at North American Aviation was designing the leading edge of the X-15 aircraft. Uh, quite an honor. I was thrilled to be doing it. Had a number of jobs, uh, first at North American and then subsequently uh, moved over to Douglas and Santa Monica uh, worked on the initial design of the DC-8 and a number of other projects. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, I was a designer and at Douglas Aircraft Company. 
the man who had the desk next to mine was wearing a 35-year pin, and he was getting his design jobs out of the same inbox I was. And it didn't take me long to figure I didn't want a 35-year Douglas pin that way. Mm-hmm. So I moved on. <laughs> wow. So You mean one like this one here? <laughs> you mean one like this one? <laughs> Yeah, I was has it was thirty. Was it thirty-five years? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> be a good editing job. <laughs> Let's talk about before college. Did you want to work in space, kind of when you were as a kid, or cause was space really a thing back then? Had no aspirations whatsoever for that. Um, I, from the time I was sixteen years old, I had to be playing with with uh, motor scooters built my first one as long as i had a motor scooter with a little bit of ability to get around my part of the country i was happy and my primary goal in high school was to become a cross-country driver i never succeeded <laughs> never did um so after high school um did you go straight to a college or did you go somewhere uh went in the navy and uh i was in i was enlisted in the navy and I was assigned to Anacostia Naval Station in Washington, and that's where they did the training on the Mark 1A fire control computer, which was the computer that they used to control the the big guns on all their ships. And uh, it was a computer about the size of a dining room table, and it was all mechanical. There were no computers, none of that type of stuff. Wow. And they did uh, addition of subtraction was done with differentials, uh, gear ratios did the multiplication. Trig tables were all cut into cams, and everything ran with motors. And that's how they decided how a bullet ought to be aimed to hit a, something 20 miles away. Wow! So they used uh, the, the si- so it's the size of a dining table. You said to yeah. develop that whole thing, and then nowadays we have these little tiny little microchip computers that could probably have done the same job, probably Correct. right? Correct. Wow! Can't wow! That's that's really amazing. But so that, that was your but first. That was World War II technology. Techn- yeah, and uh, it was quite effective at that time. Mm-hmm. As long as it worked, right? Why? why oh, yeah. <laughs> we won World War II. We went with yeah. So, um, how long did you stay in the in the Navy for? I ended up in the Navy just under two years, because on a whim I took a test that was offered, uh, potential to go into the ROTC program from the fleet. And I discovered that I had an aptitude for aptitude tests. So it wasn't that I was all that smart, but somehow the questions came out okay, and I was selected. And uh, sent to a, they took 400 people out of the fleet that year, and they sent them to a private school for the summer, and they were going to down-select from 400 to 200, and then you met a stand board at the end of that period of time. And so they asked you a lot of questions, and... Uh, through a variety of circumstances, I'd gotten acquainted with a retired admiral, and he said, when you go to the stand board, one of the things that happens is you're, they ask you a lot of questions, and the final question will be, if you're not selected for ROTC, you get to choose your next assignment. What do you wish to do? He said, the politically correct answer is submarine duty, sir. 
I'm claustrophobic, but I said it anyway. <laughs> and fortunately, I was selected. Well, Ron, <laughs> yeah, uh, I went to ROCC as well, so that proves you don't have to be very intelligent to get into <laughs> it. So, <laughs> so um, let's talk about now. So now you spent two years in the Navy. Um, did, so after you left the Navy, did you go straight to school right after? I went straight to school on the ROTC program. Uh, my folks lived up in western New York, so I selected the University of Rochester. And when I got my Navy orders, they said University of South Carolina. And I went to the guy who was in charge of that activity and said, it's a mistake. I'm supposed to be going to New York. And he said, the Navy doesn't mistake doesn't make mistakes. Go to South Carolina. And I did. You did. <laughs> so you went to the University of South Carolina to get your, what was your degree, end degree? BS in mechanical engineers. And by the way, USC, that is the original the, USC. I was just about the to ask real that. <laughs> USC. It's not, not, the, not the USC here. It's the, that's the USC that everyone Correct. went to. <laughs> Pre predated this one by some hundred years. So, okay. That's interesting. Um, so let's now talk. So you were in college. You got your degree now. Um, let's talk about after college and your first job, which was a North American, right? Correct. And so you, you did your North, duty at North American. Um, how did you get involved with NASA? Um, I, had, I had taken the job with North American, and uh, – they had a major layoff shortly after I got there. They lost two programs within 30 days, laid off 3,000 people. Uh, 3,000 people came to work with a job, were told, put all your drawings in a box, label the box, go home, we'll send your final check to you, don't come back tomorrow. Uh, that was the layoffs in those days. So uh, since I hadn't been there for six months yet, they weren't allowed to lay me off. So I stayed until six months, moved over to Douglas, had the experience with interiors design that I did not find very enjoyable. And I saw an advertisement for uh, AC Spark Plug, of all people, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, they, were they were building the, con the control systems for bombers at that time. So I signed on with them, and the fact that I had that Navy experience is what got me accepted there. So I signed on with them. And by the time I arrived in, in Milwaukee, they had received a contract for the inertial guidance for the Thor missile. So I immediately was switched over to that, ended up coming back out to California on the first Thor launch at Vandenberg, and then was uh, sent to Tucson, Arizona as an instructor for inertial guidance uh, because we were going to be flying Thor out of England at that time because that was the one missile we had that would reach Russia. So we sent Thors to England and trained RAF troops to man those, and they came over here, and I got to train them in Tucson on the inertial guidance. And uh, ended up in the winter back in Milwaukee when the snow was flying, and it was all black and brown snow, <laughs> and immediately f looked for a place in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, ended up going from there to, to Martin in Orlando, I had the inertial guidance laboratory for the Pershing missile, which was just being built. And while in the Pershing laboratory, I had all senior engineers, I'm sorry, senior union people working for me in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. They'd been there 20 years, knew every union rule there was, and I was new. Mm -hmm. They gave me fits. They knew how much their payroll was short before the paymaster ever entered the building. Wow. Uh, and about that time, 
John Glenn flew, and I thought, you know, NASA doesn't do all the work. They manage contractors who do the work, and I thought they don't have any super techs. That's where I want to work. So I Marcus, hired. Marcus, we got an yep. interesting uh, a coincidence here, a sort of a, a cross paths mm -hmm. situation. Uh, when he referred to AC spark plug, uh, I was working in advanced design at Douglas in Santa Monica at that time, and I was working with AC spark plug on the inertial guidance system oh. for the Thor missile. My goodness. Yes, yes. There we and, go. Uh, There's the first cross path, right? Yeah, at that <laughs> time in, at, at Douglas, uh, it was a highly classified project. Uh, within the company, it was called Green Arrow, and it had top priority for anything needed, whether it was personnel or material or processing of documentation, drawings, and so forth. Um, and about that time, while all my friends were getting involved with the Thor, then I got called into flight training, mm -hmm. and I had to leave the company uh, and go to, go to work for the Air Force for a while. But uh, very interesting. Uh, that brings back a lot of old memories. <laughs> were you still working on Thor for the Air Force? Uh, no, I was not. I went into pilot training, so uh, no, I, I was shooting a different kind of missile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you... I understood somewhere you were flying F-86s. Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, another crossover. During the short period of time I was at North American, uh, we were in the we were in the uh, Far Eastern War at that time, and uh, the F-100 was our newest airplane, and the F-100 was very fast but not very maneuverable, and they sent them over to Vietnam. And the MiGs were having fun with those F-100s because the MiGs were much more nimble. And the Air Force went to North American Aviation, asked us to pull 30 of the F-86s out of the boneyard and refurb them and ship them over. And that occurred over a period of nine months, 12 months, something like that. Was that the F-86A model, do you recall? Don't recall what the model was. Uh, but uh, we set up a separate line over at the airport to refurb those, and the reports after we shipped them over was that they were just knocking the MiGs senseless. Well, it must not have been the A model, because the A model was about <laughs> the, the equivalent of the MiG-15, and it wasn't until we got the uh, uh, E models or, and the F models over in Korea that uh, the Air Force was able to uh, take control of that MiG situation. So it, got, it was pretty touch and go for quite a while. Yeah. But you know, North American responded extremely quickly to the need to get improved aircraft over there. Uh, pretty amazing. In fact, uh, for the later models, they even replaced the wing entirely. Hmm. They did away with the wing that had the uh, leading edge slats and went to a, a solid wing, one they called a 6-3 version, a little bit wider at the at the cord, a little bit uh, wider at the tip, uh, and that airplane was able to handle the MiG easily. Great. We were involved about the same time. Yeah, very much so. There we have our first cross paths. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so after you, you now you're, you're looking to become super tech, right, at the, uh, not NASA, I'm right? looking to not have to deal with super techs anymore. Uh -huh. Oh. Uh, because at that time, uh, NASA was the manager of the programs, and we had technical expertise, but we looked, all of the wrench turning was all done by contractors. Mm -hmm. And so the contractors were the ones that had the techs and had to deal with them. Mm -hmm. So then now, so that, now that leads into 
the time at NASA. So what, what was your first big project with them? When I hired in at NASA, I was expecting about two months of paperwork, and uh, I interviewed with one of the NASA people working at the Cape on a Saturday in Orlando, and he asked if I could come to work on Monday, and I said, well, what about all the civil service paperwork? And he says, don't worry about that. How soon can you come to work? So two weeks later, everything had been cleared through the, the works of civil service, and I reported in. And I'd been there, uh, at the time I got there, I was the Apollo Inertial Guidance Department. It was me, that was it. Just you? Just me. Wow. Um, the group was fairly small, or flying Mercury at that time. The NASA contingent there was probably 30 to 35 people on Mercury getting ready for Gemini and the advanced planning for Apollo. So it was a pretty small group. And I'd been there for probably one to two weeks and my boss came in and said, uh, MIT is doing the design of the inertial guidance for the Apollo, and uh, I'd like you to go up to MIT next week and contract for all the equipment we'll need to check it out for the lunar flights. And I said, I don't know anything about that. He said, well, your guidance, go. So I ended up up at MIT, and over a period of about three or four days, got acquainted enough with the systems, that I ended up contracting for the launch required equipment and nobody ever questioned me and somehow we ended up going to the moon. Wow, so, so you were kind of a reason to what, how you guys, all, how we got to the moon. That yeah, Everybody was inventing it every day. Uh, there was no precedent for what we did and so uh, we just did the best we could and, and muddled on through all of that. So you you stayed on Apollo through its entirety till the end, or I did, but there were some side trips. Mm -hmm. uh, my my first launch related assignment, uh, the Apollo had an escape rocket that would, in the event of an accident, would separate the Apollo spacecraft, take it up to an altitude away from the booster, assuming the booster was blowing up, and then do a parachute deploy, and then land and be recovered. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. So in order to, de in order to validate that system, uh, they took, a, took an Apollo capsule that was not man-rated but had all the other equipment, the return landing equipment, out to White Sands, New Mexico. Uh, we put it on a Little Joe solid rocket motor, launched it, and then did a, an abort mm -hmm. and proved that, in fact, the tower flies off uh, separates, the parachutes come out, the capsule lands, and the people would have survived. And that was my White Sands experience. And that system was never used, right? Because we didn't, there was no... Correct. So that's that's a good thing, that's though, the right? Thing. <laughs> uh, the big, big experience I had while we were out there, uh, we had to stay in El Paso because there were no facilities at White Sands. And it's about a 30-mile drive out there. And so when I arrived... Uh, I, I rented a car at the airport, and they gave me a nice big Chrysler and uh, got out to the base. The base manager said, there are not going to be any big Chryslers out here. So I had to turn my car in, and we had six people in our, in our launch crew from the NASA side plus North American contractors doing the technical work. And so we rode from El Paso out to the base every day in a, in a big Chevrolet that had, had the, the rear-facing seat so we were all jammed into that little car with the Beatles blaring and North American people 
uh, they were getting mileage for their trips back and forth. And so all of them, when they got that assignment, went down and bought new Porsches. And so each day, those guys, one per car, would go flying by us in their Porsches and blow their horns and wave at us with us guys jammed in that Chevrolet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's my memories of That's your memory. <laughs> A little bit of sour grapes there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's. So you worked th throughout the Apollo. Any more? Any more side kind of trips other than those? Yeah. Uh, when I got back from uh, the White Sands trip, uh, we were just starting to fabricate the first test spacecraft out at out at uh, Rockwell, North American at the time, uh, in Downey, California. And so I was sent out as the NASA representative for the construction and testing of that uh, to get it where we could ship it to the Cape. And then it would have been launched on a Saturn 1B mm -hmm. into Earth orbit to test the systems. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the better part of, I guess, probably nine months, I guess, during that construction and testing out here. And uh, North American had three shifts of people working, and I was one shift working testing around the clock. Mm -hmm. And I've got to the point I didn't know what week it was or what day it was but we did finally get it checked out and shipped it wow well I want to ask a question here uh, you know when when we read about your background all the programs you worked on in manned space and in uh, unmanned launch vehicles and uh, various programs like uh, Atlas Delta and Titan as well as Apollo and the space shuttle Gemini would you consider your work uh, on the Apollo program as a high point in your career, or was that just a, a stepping stone onto bigger things? For me personally, it was a stepping stone because the shuttle was my program. I was involved in the, in the initial concepting of the shuttle, uh, the selecting of a contractor, the design of it, and I was responsible for, I was the lead for engineering for the facilities at Kennedy Space Center, and then out at Vandenberg. So. The shuttle was really where I felt my major presence was felt. Very good. Uh, certainly an amazing uh, background. And I think uh, if we chat after this little discussion here, uh, we'll mention a few people that I'm sure that you and I uh, <laughs> consider good friends of ours and uh, uh, from back at the Cape and as well as at Rockwell and other places where you've worked. So. I think there are a lot of other cross paths. Cross that paths. I th that's what I we think, can too. We talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> Look forward to that. <laughs> so now you've uh, done your time with uh, Apollo. What was the next major major project? Well, I had, I had a detour before the major part of Apollo. Uh, when I came back from the, from the uh, design construction of the boilerplate, we launched that on a Saturn 1B. The mission was successful. And as soon as we got over and I was ready to take a vacation, they said, uh, you're now the lead project engineer on Gemini 4. So uh, that was a priority launch. That ended up being our first spacewalk with Ed White. And so that was my, my next major assignment. And uh, that was right at the front end of the Gemini program. And the Gemini flew on a Titan II. Mm -hmm. And the early history of the Titan II was not good. Uh, they had what was called POGO, which was a vertical oscillation um, that they weren't quite sure why, and they blew up a series of them. Um, the last intended test launch before we put men on a, Merc on a Gemini, I was standing out at the flight line when they launched it. 
along with Gus Grissom and several of the other guys that were going to be flying on the next mission. And the vehicle went up about 100 yards and blew up. And I saw some of the biggest eyeballs I've ever seen on those astronauts. Uh, it turns out that uh, a company called Aerospace Corporation out of El Segundo uh, has worked with the Air Force on technical issues for many years. And they jumped on that problem, understood what it was, got a fix for it, and they flew then, I think, one more Gemini after that to prove they had fixed it, and then we went into the man Gemini. So uh, Aerospace Corporation is the company that I ended up working as the, as the principal director on out of Vandenberg later on, many years later. Wow. Lots of that, that project, wow. Um, so now Gemini, um, when did, what was your next big adventure? <laughs> uh, after, as a result of what I had done on, on the boilerplate, it was a bunch of the front end planning for what, what have we got to do with the vehicle in order to be able to launch it at mm -hmm. the Cape. And so uh, at the end of Gemini, I was assigned that same function on the space shuttle. And so I became the, the head of test integration and I was responsible for developing the flow planning at the Cape. Uh, something gets in, gets delivered on a big airplane, what happens between then and the launch? Mm -hmm. uh, what processing gets done? What do you do as a small component? What do you do in integrated testing? So all of the criteria for that testing, I was responsible for developing, and then the procedures that went into it. So we would look at what had to be done, develop a flow plan on paper, get everybody to sign up with it. Yes, that's what ought to be done and then start developing the procedures to do each one of those tests. And I ended up approved, final approval on all of those procedures. So it was really all of the planning to get you up to the point you could fly it. And the kind of things you deal with, you know you're gonna have some problems with some of the smaller parts. Do you really wanna spend a bunch of time testing them at that small part level? Or do you wanna Hopefully the schedule will work better if you just put it all together, do one big test, and then fly it. Well, you do that and have a problem with a little part when you're in the middle of that big test, and suddenly everything shuts down while you take things apart and try to fix it. So it's working all those compromises of at what level do you do your testing to minimize the, in, the problems you have with schedule and hopefully get to the end date soonest. And that was really my task, starting at the first part of Apollo, and I ended up with that job throughout Apollo. So you, um, let's now talk the, the space shuttle. What was, so that was your kind of ground um, highlight, right, of your career, you said. Yes. What made it that way? What was that? Well, if I could take about a two-minute detour first. Sure. Uh, as we were fi finishing out the shuttle, I mean, the the Apollo program, uh, we had purchased, NASA had purchased 20 vehicles. And as we were going along and having great success, in the back of everybody's mind was the fact that we are playing Russian roulette. Mm -hmm. We never had a lunar mission or even an Earth orbital mission that we did not have significant failures. The design was usually failure tolerant to the point that they didn't bite us, but we had the problems. And so, Everyone was thinking we've had, at, at mission 17, we've had 17 good flights. What would happen if we lost men on the moon on the 18th? So the decision was made, uh, for budget reasons, we'll uh, halt now. We've had good success. And so we had three vehicles left over. And one of them, 
uh, Vehicle 20, was assigned to a program called Skylab, uh, Earth Orbital Space Station, our first attempt at it. And what we did was take a Saturn II stage, and we, if we're going to go in Earth orbit, we don't need the, the third stage to go to like we would to go to the moon. So we outfitted it as a manned orbital laboratory. And that was our first experimenting with, with toilets mm -hmm. and with uh, eating accommodations and a whole bunch of stuff that, was, that you need in Earth orbit for a space station that you don't need going to the moon. Uh, going to the moon, the, the habitation accommodations were very primitive. Mm -hmm. uh, you bagged what you could, mm -hmm. hope nothing got the wrong place in the spacecraft, and so now we're going to try to develop a way to live in space. Mm -hmm. So that was developed very short time period to use one of those three Apollos that we weren't going to fly. In the process of developing it quickly, it had a number of problems, and uh, you may recall the panic when we launched the first one, and uh, a solar shield uh, ended up getting tangled up with our solar panels, and so we didn't have power and we overheated, uh, and that was launched unmanned, and then we took a smaller rocket, minus one of the big stages, and launched astronauts. We put three crews on there eventually. The three crews were able to salvage th the mission, uh, EVA got them outside where they could disentangle things. So it ended up being a good program. But once I had the, had the procedures and the, everything baselined for the, for the Apollo, uh, my management thought I wasn't busy enough, so I got assigned the job as the program manager for Skylab. And I worked on Skylab for just over one year. And when I left the Skylab program, it was further from launch than it was when I started. So it was a very challenging program, and I got fortunately got away from it because I was named to the uh, board at, Vandem at uh, Huntsville, Alabama, which was to develop the concept for space shuttle. For space shuttle. So Skylab, that was the the state that was the station, right? Was that with the kind of like the little propeller on top? Was that that, or was that the? You're probably referring to the I, solar I'm panels yeah, that were on yeah. top of that. Yes, 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 right, right. That was for the, yeah. for the people at home that probably right. are um, not right. aware of what Skylab looked like. That was that was the first attempt, right, at getting kind of living quarter situation quarters. That's up correct. In space. Yeah, that program was going on at Douglas uh, in parallel with another project I was working on, which was a the manned orbiting laboratory. Okay. Uh, some, what turned out to be later, good friends of mine that were astronauts on Skylab, like uh, Ed Gibson and uh, and Pete Conrad. Uh, uh, we worked together on subsequent uh, projects, including the Space Lab, which I know you had something to do with. And of course, later on, uh, m my last project, which was a reusable launch vehicle, and Pete Conrad, who had flown on Skylab, subsequently went to the moon and then uh, got involved in unmanned launch vehicles and uh, worked on my team, was part of my team, or maybe I was part of his, I mean, in his mind anyway, <laughs> <laughs> developing uh, an un, uh, a reusable launch vehicle. But yeah, those were, uh, those were hectic days. It was new, uh, new technology, new things being developed, for the, being used for the first time. And what he mentions was really a critical issue when uh, the space, uh, when the uh, sun shield didn't deploy properly, the solar panel didn't deploy properly, so they went to uh, a panic mode to recover 
and make the thing operate anyway and finally succeeded in doing that. A lot of credit went to a lot of people, both from NASA and on the contractor side, that finally made that quite a success. It led to what has now become the International Space Station, but that was our first, uh, our first attempt. I think it's also important to know that while these things were going on, the Russians had their own manned space program, and they were far ahead of us. Uh, they were developing uh, really a, a, what at that time was considered a permanent uh, presence in space in the form of a space station. It subsequently, many years later, uh, was brought out of the sky and, uh, and returned to the Earth and in flames, of course, uh, which ours will someday as well. But uh, for a long time there, the Russians were way ahead of us in that, that part of the space game. Yep. One of the things that was never talked about much on the, on the uh, Skylab, at the head of that Skylab assembly was what was called Apollo Telescope Mount. And it was actually a telescope which was designed for solar viewing. And when it was launched, it was right up at the head of the stack inside of a fairing. But it was on, it was on a set of trunnions so that when you got up there, you could tip it off to the side because the nose is where the other astronauts had to, had to dock with their Apollo docking system. But it did solar studies, and it was the first time we had done major solar studies. I didn't know that. I've been following that program for, for, for that, and I never knew that little y thing. You know, Marcus, um, I brought the issue of the Russian space program mm -hmm. into the conversation because I'm really anxious uh, to, uh, to have Don look back on his perspective from all the programs he's been involved with uh, and see what kind of an answer he has to the question of, do you think that the United States has lost their lead in the space program. Some people say the Russians have taken it over, and even the Chinese, but we are now dependent on the Russians to provide our uh, launch services for both uh, astronauts as well as uh, logistics, and to provide uh, astronaut recovery to the Earth uh, on Russian launch vehicles, since we don't have a space shuttle anymore. So do you think we've lost our lead? And if so, what are we going to do to get it back? I've been very distressed by that subject. Uh, the space shuttle flew hundred and some missions. During that whole period of time, we never upgraded the space shuttle except for avionics, and then we did some digital upgrades. Mm -hmm. We basically flew the Model T in the time of 1960 cars. Uh, terrible mistake in my way. Uh, it turns out that after Apollo, the public, the public uh, perception was that NASA was spending a lot of money that ought to be used for people welfare. And so it was a turning point in our, from my perspective, in our viewpoint in this whole country. And so the budgets for NASA got cut. In order to keep flying the space shuttle, by, which by presidential directive was to fly all U.S. missions, uh, to keep that flying, that's where the money went, was just sustainment money, and they never, through all those years, advanced the capability of it. So it did come to an end point, and, and after the two failures, uh, it became pretty obvious that new money was not going to go into shuttle to upgrade it, and so they obviously quit flying it eventually. Uh, manned space flight has gotten out of the mind of the people 
who are putting money into space. The money that's going into it now has been private money, Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. uh, we got three and maybe four companies right now mm -hmm. that are attempting to do orbital uh, vehicles. Uh, Musk certainly is flying right now, but there are some behind him and mm -hmm. several of them, and they may pan out. But government has quit leading, and the one thing that has been a bright spot for me and NASA, I. For years, I've not told people I work for NASA at the Cape because that is not an outfit that I have been proud of for years. But when it comes to the unmanned area, our people are still doing great things, and I think they're probably ahead in that area. But it grates me every time to see U.S. tax dollars spent to fly our people on a Russian booster. You're here. I certainly want to back up that statement. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Russia. I've been to Star City. I've met several of their cosmonauts. Uh, uh, they put a lot of effort into it. Uh, believe me, their technology uh, is nowhere near the level of ours. Uh, they're still using old techniques, but uh, they they operate by the old adage, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, so they don't do much in the way of advancing the technology. And fortunately, at least we have uh, some private industry people, like he mentioned, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and others that are pouring money into new ventures. And for the, for the near term, it looks like they're the ones that are going to keep our finger in the space pie uh, for the uh, upcoming few years. But uh, would you personally think uh, there we could muster enough public support to get a new manned space program going in the next few years? Not government funded. Um, I view with great interest our current uh, current situation in Congress, where we have a preponderance of of the House of Representatives who doesn't know how to spell space, doesn't want to learn how, is mostly interested in taking whatever money they can scrape up and spending it on welfare programs. And I have the non-politically correct view that uh, when you use welfare, it's like feeding someone a fish, and when you do space programs, it's like teaching people how to fish. Uh, people talk about the money we spent on the moon, some $19 billion, and over the years, I've been confronted from time to time by people who say, why did we waste $19 billion on the moon? And my answer, which I believe is 100% correct, is we didn't spend $1 on the moon. We spent $19 billion on college educations, hardware and technology development, and every bit of that went for improvements within the United States for the taxpayers who paid that bill. Not a dollar was spent on the moon. Well, Don, uh, if we're in that situation today, what about the young people in this country? Do you think there are any, uh, any future in the space industry for young people left today? I think it has to be dedicated people, and it probably will not be a large number. But we are, you know, we look at so much today of the difficulties in our country, of poverty, of young kids that have gone wild. Uh, everything's gone bad. But if you try getting one of your smart children into a big university, guess what? It's tough. There's a lot of competition. So of the millions of kids, there are going to be thousands of kids who will fill that niche eventually. But uh, it's hard to see them, but they're there. 
Elon Musk did not personally design and build his spacecraft. There are smart people out there who have uh, built upon the capabilities that were developed. The software that were used for the design of Musk's spacecraft were all developed during Apollo. Uh, it's, upgrade, it's upgraded as it's gone along, but the foundation was laid there. Well, Don, I think that uh, we here at the Lion Air Museum uh, share a common uh, thread of interest. Uh, we spend a lot of our effort talking to young people. We show them the airplanes here. We talk to them about military history that this country has been involved in uh, and what our role has been in uh, in protecting freedom and that sort of thing. We try to get them interested in that, in that history. And more, more so, we try to get them interested in aviation. And we find that many of them are and want to learn more and are looking for a career in aviation and in the space industry. Uh, what do you think, what, what, what advice would you offer young people today if they thought they might be interested in aviation or space? I think like you mentioned, there are many opportunities. Lion Air Museum is certainly one of them. But anywhere in the country, there are opportunities all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast for someone who desires it but it has to start as desire. Nobody is encouraging the space program on young people on a general basis. Uh, our news outlets, uh, you, if you look online, you gotta look for things that would be of interest that would help you know what to do. So if the interest is there in somebody's mind, I don't quite know how you get it created because at the time of the Apollo program, Every news agency, every magazine had NASA and astronauts in it and the excitement of space. You won't find that anywhere in the publications today. So the recent 50th anniversary celebrations, for some number of nights, the television stations were f full of it. And I'd like to believe that planted some seeds in young people. But this week, try to find something in anywhere in the news on space. Unless something spectacular happens, it won't be noted. And if something spectacular happens, it's part of the current news situation where that lasts an hour or two. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, doesn't sound too good for our future uh, if we can't get young people interested and if there aren't opportunities. But uh, that brings me to another question. Uh, we're, let's say, last generation. The new generation is computer savvy. They're used to having things being automated. Uh, if we're talking about sometime in the, in the future going to Mars, for example, do you think there's still a need even to send humans to Mars? Why not just do it with automated vehicles? Having spent most of my career in manned spaceflight, I'm for manned spaceflight. Uh, I cannot say rationally that every dollar should be spent that way rather than on the unmanned because you certainly can do more exploratory missions with an inexpensive small unmanned spacecraft than you can with a manned one. Uh, the burdens of maintaining people in space are extensive. And not only that, but the second piece of it, if you lose an exp exploration spacecraft today, it may make the news today or tomorrow, you lose a flight crew in space, your program is done. So 
the risk is so high that it makes the it makes the payback a little bit low when you risk so much to do it so I'm not convinced yet that Mars is an appropriate challenge, but I think if we go back to the moon and start doing successful things, it will become an extrapolation. Nobody thought when we first started uh, with Sputnik that we would be going to the moon. So I think if you do good work where you are, the future will start to look worthwhile. Oh, beautifully said. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I think it's, you know, take the small steps first. You know, everyone's thinking all those um, aspirations. Let's go to Mars. But I'm like, we have a moon right here. Why don't we go there back there first? Right. So that's that's uh, the way we'll take it. So I know we kind of got a little bit off track. Right. But um, let's try to get back on the track here. Um, so let's talk. So the space shuttle development. Now, uh, let's go back to that. Um, what was your role in those developments? So you were doing the, are you, were you doing the development from um, all the way up till launch, uh, up until the, the pad, or was there something? In yes. Uh, my first assignment, I was the Kennedy Space Center representative on a working team that went to Marshall Space Flight Center to try to scope what a space shuttle ought to be. Uh, it didn't start out as somebody saying, here's a space shuttle, let's go build one. He said, we're going to do the next thing with the recoverable. Uh, let's get to some people together. Let's, light some, let's get some contractors behind them, and let's explore things, see what we can do. We ended up with three contractors, uh, McDonnell Douglas. Uh, Chrysler was one of our contractors for a while, and, of course, Rockwell and uh, Boeing. And so a group of probably, I think there were probably 35 or 40 of us, I was the Kennedy representative. Uh, there were representatives from Johnson Space Center, and the predominant group of people were from Marshall, which is where we did it. And uh, when I arrived, I was given a, an office with a desk and a secretary, and I opened the desk up, and laying in that desk drawer was a slide rule. And I opened up the slide rule, and it had Werner von Braun's name on it. It was his slide rule. And he'd left it in his desk when they moved his that desk out and moved another one in. So uh, I was kind of impressed, so I asked somebody what to do with it, and they said, well, nobody cares, take it. So I did, and I was very proud of it when I lived in Florida, and somewhere between Florida and moving out here, I can't find it. Oh. But anyway, that's a sidelight. There were about 30 people who were up there. We had contractors who were do doing development concepts, and... We had monthly reviews with each of the contractors, and they would come in with recommendations. We also had several committees uh, representing the scientific community uh, and several other groups who would come in with their recommendations of what a, sat of what a space shuttle ought to be able to do. And, uh, of course, you start out not knowing, is it going to be one person? Is it going to be 30? Uh, is it going to be low-Earth orbit, high-Earth orbit? Uh, how long should it be able to stay up there? Uh, what kind of payload should it be able to mm -hmm. take? Uh, bring on your suitcases or drive a truck on? Mm -hmm. So all of those got worked over a period of pretty close to two years before we ended up with a concept. Uh, the initial concept when we started out, we were to have a flyback booster and a flyback orbiter. Uh, the booster would take it up to some 40,000 feet, and we would launch the orbiter from 40,000 feet to orbit. And, of course, uh, it took about 30 days for the pricing of all that to come back. 
and we immediately decided uh, we probably didn't need that flyback booster. Mm -hmm. And that's when we came to the solid rocket motors that uh, bailed us out in terms of thrust to get us to orbit, but also created many problems along the way. Uh, at the end of that two-year period, we had down-selected to the point we knew what we wanted to build and had buy-in from the scientific community and had budget from the Washington people, went into a source selection uh, out in Houston, and over a period of a month of source selection, down-selected to Rockwell, North American mm -hmm. Aviation, who built it. Mm -hmm. Which is right, actually, was, was here in Downey, right? Correct. So it was all built locally. Yeah, the, d the initial design was in Downey. Oh, Downey. Most of the construction was out in the uh, and over there, yeah. out in Palmdale. Mm -hmm. Wow, so we got a little local, you know, space shuttle. <laughs> S since I was the Kennedy rep uh, on space shuttle, I got to get involved in the flight hardware design also from mm -hmm. a Kennedy perspective. Obviously, when you start to build something uh, that is heavily influenced by people from Johnson who were all hardware, minimal, astronauts, major. Uh, that provides one one frame of reference. And if you're the guy with, with the wrenches at the Cape trying to put it together and make it fly, it's a totally different perspective. So there were numerous places where uh, the design trades would be between something which made the processing at the Cape quicker and easier, but weighed, weighed more on the spacecraft. And so in, I ended up being the Kennedy advocate for everything that would allow us to launch it, as opposed to the astronaut-related Houston people who really just wanted to fly it. Mm -hmm. So I had that job during the design phase in parallel with working the ground facilities. And since I was working with the flight hardware, the whole program was built around interface control documents where uh, uh, there's an interface between the orbiter and the external tank, and that's defined. Mm -hmm. And the external tank people go off and try to work to that, and when they can't meet it, they negotiate a difference in the interface. So that's how the program was run. So I had the Kennedy side interface working with both the orbiter interface, the ET interface, and the solid rocket motor interface, because they all came separately to the mm -hmm. Cape. So it, the negotiating over a period of a couple, three years of all those interfaces with design groups supporting each one of them and then somehow trying to make those interfaces mesh where it would meet the program requirements, that's how I spent about three years at the front end of the shuttle program. That's that's truly amazing, This you know, because you've basically been a part of almost all of the American manned space programs from kind of its beginning to kind of yep. now. Um, so so um, let's um, go now. So what else was were you a part of during that shuttle program? The shuttle program really occupied my life during that period of time. Uh, we were working pretty long hours. We ended up, uh, we took the Apollo facilities and the whole intent was to use them to the extent possible. Um, the Apollo had its entire booster system on the, on the launch mount, which was carried out by our crawler transporter. And the whole concept, and from the start of everything, I, it's the concept that I was working with. I wasn't turning wrenches. So the concept was how do we launch an Apollo and minimize the time? You can check everything out in a hangar, take it out to the pad, hook it all up, check everything all out again, and that takes a lot of time. The concept we ended up with for Apollo 
was build a VAB, a vertical assembly building, use that to assemble everything, and then do your checkout there. And But if you do that, now you've got to break all those interfaces and start all over again at the launch pad. We built a big crawler transporter to take it out there, and those ground interfaces, they were in the crawler transporter. So when we did all of that delicate checkout, we could run a launch readiness test in the VAB. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be fueled, but everything was there. You could check out every bit of the software, all of the hardware on the vehicle. And when you rolled it out to the pad, you maintained those interfaces. You hooked up the launch umbilical tower through the crawler transporter to the pad, but there weren't any of the direct interfaces. The crawler had the power systems, the power had the computers, they had everything, and so you hooked up landlines, you hooked up fuel lines, but all of your vehicle flight interfaces stayed the same. So now we come to Space Shuttle, and we put these two big solid rocket motors on it, which weighed as much as the entire Apollo. So you can't keep it that way anymore. So we ended up having to totally rebuild and change our concepts because we had to we had to take the tower off from the off from the uh-huh. crawler transporter for weight reasons in order to hold the solids and once you do that you've now got to take all those interfaces that you've already checked out in the VAB and you got to rework them on the pad mm-hmm. so there were major things like that that were the kind of things that I enjoyed playing with uh, didn't have much to do with uh, with filling up the, the, filling up the uh-huh, tanks. The but, tank, yeah. uh, one of the concept issues that came on early, uh, they wanted to have uh, launch and landing tests because they wanted to check how the how the how the shuttle handled from it when in its landing phase, and so they decided uh, somewhere way up in the higher echelons that we were going to have a drop test for the space shuttle, and we obviously had to transport it cross country. So uh, how are we going to do that? And so uh, several concepts were put forth. And, uh, of course, every astronaut at that time was a test pilot. It isn't that way anymore, but it was at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been intrigued for many years from a hobby standpoint with Zeppelins. Mm-hmm. And so I thought there have been some experiments in Europe with, with heavy lift Zeppelins mm-hmm. to handle things like like large generators and things of that sort. So I thought, what a benefit that would be if we built a big Zeppelin that would handle the orbiter, and now all of this heavy lift cross-country stuff is a piece of cake in this country. So uh, since I was the Kennedy rep, I didn't talk to anybody out there. I I contacted Goodyear, and they said, yeah, we'd be interested in putting a proposal together. So they did. They put a proposal together, and uh, I sponsored that proposal, and uh, took it to Houston, and I barely made it back to my airplane because the pilots in Houston wanted no part of a Zeppelin. They are airplane pilots. <laughs> airplane, must be all airplane. And uh, I very quickly got tossed out, <laughs> and uh, we ended up with a 747 carrier aircraft, as you know. Mm-hmm. Which later, which carried the Enterprise to do yes. that test, which was... <laughs> well, fortunately, that solution did work, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it, it didn't it, turn out bad. You know, yes, and it did, you know, it did work, and it... It, you know, kind of, you know, that space shuttle and that 747 that it carried on is kind of that icon, really, of of the yes. NASA, right? So they kind of, 
you know, that's kind of their image that they have, including Apollo and all that That became a, hot, a very good publicity uh, agent mm-hmm. flying uh, yeah. around the country. It did, because I ended up getting one of those little model kit, little little models, and I have one that's sitting in my room right now with the space shuttle on top of it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Quite interesting. So now you've developed the systems for that, for the shuttle. Um, how long did you stay on that program for? Was that pretty much the int- majority of the career? Yeah, I, I stayed uh, I stayed until 80, 84, mm-hmm. and uh, we had everything everything working everything baselined. Uh, we'd already gotten several successful flights, mm-hmm. and so my job was primarily changes, improvements, things that would mm-hmm. process faster. Uh, we had problems with originally with the shuttle engines. Uh, their interface is very tough. The, they're very delicate. And so we spent some time trying to figure out how can we get make how can we modify ground equipment to change them out quicker, uh, with without getting damaged to the so things like that, mm-hmm. and that wasn't near as much fun as what I'd been doing, mm-hmm. but that was kind of the work that was there, and that's what I did for about two years after we started flying, mm-hmm. and uh, that was when Vandenberg got in trouble and the whole new window opened. Actually, let's move to the Vandenberg window. Actually, let's talk That's about good. that. Let's uh, let's enter into that. So, what got you involved at at, at Vandenberg? Uh, the Air Force. I think I mentioned just originally when we were starting out, uh, at least briefly, that uh, the contractors that they hired were the very same corporate contractors that we had hired at Kennedy, who developed all of our ground support equipment, and by that time had it working and working well. Uh, somehow. At Vandenberg, uh, the facilities which we had designed by our own internal NASA engineering people, uh, which had all worked very well for Apollo and then modified for shuttle, uh, out at Vandenberg as part of basic Air Force procurement policy, facility work is done by Corps of Engineers. And the Corps of Engineers, uh, with what they normally do, it's dams, water control, they really were not the ideal people to design a launch pad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the system, the money flows for that facility work through the Corps of Engineering budgeting stuff. So uh, nobody who had had really Vandenberg or K- Kennedy experience really even had a toe in the water mm-hmm. for that original work at Vandenberg. And as you mentioned earlier, the mole pad had already been built to fly with a Titan IV. Mm-hmm with two big solids, uh, but it was totally different than anything the shuttle could accommodate, and it was many, many cubic yards of reinforced concrete that we were trying to work around on the shuttle to find some way to make it work, because in the political world, uh, when shuttle was going to be flown from Vandenberg, a high-level decision was made, we're going to save a lot of money because we're going to reuse a pad we already spent a bunch of money on rather than starting fresh. And we spent far more money modifying than we would have with a piece of fresh ground. And so the best po- best way would have been just to restart it from yes. scratch. That's a, that's a story much uh, much repeated. Uh, you know, you put out a, a proposal that uh, looks good uh, until you get the uh, the approval. Then you go back and fix it and do it the right way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what ended up? You know, I know was was. Was truly at fault the Challenger disaster that halted the the pro- progress at Vandenberg? Would that was that the real kind of ending yes. the guillotine in that? Uh, 
you mentioned the mole program. Uh, a guy by the name of, of uh, Pete Aldrich was to fly on that one. Uh, at that time, Pete Aldrich was the undersecretary of the Air Force, which, unknown to most people, was the black head of the National Reconnaissance Office. Uh, so uh, he was undersecretary of the Air Force at the time that Challenger went down. He was responsible for flying missions which were so black they supposedly didn't exist on a space shuttle and NASA had been founded as an open open organization with free information flow. So here's a black organization being forced to fly on a space shuttle with very little control over security. So they were spring-loaded to get off from it. They tried early on, uh, while, we, while we were flying the first missions at Kennedy, uh, the Air Force, uh, Aldrich and company, uh, went to the government and tried to get permission to get off from the shuttle for their critical programs and were turned down because they needed the money that that program had in order to fly shuttle. So when Challenger went down, I'm not sure it hit the water before Pete Aldrich was saying, we can't depend on the shuttle, we got to have our own boosters. Um, he went back to Congress and Congress gave a supplemental permission uh, for him to buy, as I recall, 10 10 Titan boosters at that point uh, because they knew the shuttle wasn't going to fly again for a while and he said we have assets we must have up there. So that's where the Titan got back into the, into the flying and once he got that done it was just a question then of follow-on purchases and never looking back to shuttle. Uh, mm -hmm. I think Marcus, I think Marcus uh, we maybe haven't made it clear that the, the mole program or the manned orbiting laboratory was a Gemini vehicle basically, but with a cylindrical laboratory uh, attached to it in which uh, in the open uh, communications with the public was to be a scientific laboratory to do scientific observations performed by the flight crew, which would be two astronauts. In reality, it was a huge camera. Mm -hmm. That program uh, trundled along for about three years until there was a successful return of a, a, a camera a film capsule from an unmanned Agena spacecraft in Project Corona. And uh, the capsule uh, parachuted Earth and was picked up by uh, an aircraft on its way down, grabbed by a hook, you might say, and retrieved. And at that point, it became clear that we didn't have to have astronauts up there pointing the camera, we could do it unmanned. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the way the program has uh, proceeded ever since, which almost brings us back to full circle about uh, if we ever talk about Mars, uh, going back to Mars, uh, there's going to be an argument again, can we, should, do we have to do it with, with people or can we do it with automated vehicles? I'd love to get back to that subject all the time. <laughs> see. Yeah. I, I'm fully convinced that if we want scientific information, uh, automated spacecraft is the way to do it. Uh, there is uh, a strong, small group that says we really got to have man there because uh, only man can make the decisions that you can't make from Earth. You got to make them when you get there and see where you are, what's on, how it's going which is the same argument that was used for man on the moon, and there's still a group of those people, 
And it certainly is like climbing Mount Everest. It's something that's there. You think you just really got to do it eventually. Um, but it's not a scientific issue. Mm -hmm. It's an issue of what does mankind want to do, we want to expand our experiences. And for the people that say, the Earth is so messed up, we need to go to Mars as a life raft, I say, if, if all of the years on the Earth have screwed it up so bad it can't survive, Mars is helpless. Mm -hmm. So you think so? Um, for a question for both of you guys, really is, is is Mars really just kind of this this picture that everyone wants to perceive that this will be a, a land that will be Earth and stuff like that? When in reality, you know, we should be thinking about the scientific side well, of it. You know, I I think I I think uh, Don and I are on the same track here. Uh, um, it's it's kind of that old statement: we have to go there because it's there. Uh, we need to explore that thing. We need to extend humans' understanding of this universe that we're in. But the idea that we need to uh, inhabit it because we're going to ruin the Earth is a, is a really bad argument. If we have a problem that big on the Earth, we ought to fix them before we go tr <laughs> trundling off to some other place yeah. and destroy that too. What do you think, Don? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> fix, fix, fix our problems first before fixing others. <laughs> yeah, we, but, but we have a habit of not doing that. Yeah. We, I, yes, we, if we had put a planned development program in 30 years ago for the space shuttle, we could be flying the space shuttle. We don't fix what's been there. We have an interstate system that we cannot begin to fix in the time period it took to build it to begin with. We just haven't demonstrated very good ability to maintain what we are able with our scientific ability to build. We're good. Okay. Um, so now let's talk um, the Vandenberg. So I see I've lost track of what I was. <laughs> that's my train of thought. Yeah, where I keep where, I keep pulling you, you off keep, the track. Well, you keep Jeff pulling Marcus. me off. Yeah. <laughs> It is interesting, though, the, you know, the, the conversations we're having. Um, so now let's, um, your Vandenberg, was was that kind of the last step? And then did you go into retirement after Vandenberg? Was I that did retire from Vandenberg, yeah. Um, but my space shuttle job at Vandenberg wasn't my final job there. Um, I spent two years as the tech director for the shuttle program. And uh, at that time, we were still going to be flying the space shuttle. But most of the work had been done. We had had incredible technological issues at Vandenberg that I would never have undertaken at Kennedy. Part of it was the layout, the, the uh, geology of the place, mm -hmm. uh, hilly. Uh, many, many problems came from that. A bunch of problems came from the fact that we were trying to reuse something that was not compatible. Other problems were, came from the fact that the Corps of Engineers uh, was using incompatible piping. Miles mm -hmm. of it were buried and we start checking it out, and we discuss where we got rust and things totally incompatible with the fluids that have to flow through them. So there was a whole lot of that that went on, but we eventually got to the point that we did take a facility verification vehicle out there, flew it out on the 747, unloaded it, went through the facilities, erected it at the launch pad, and we could have, with a few months more work, flown from there. But as I mentioned, uh, Pete Aldrich from the head of the Air Force, who was responsible for Vandenberg, really wanted no part of it to begin with. And consequently, uh, 
I had moved over by that time to the shuttle to the shuttle with Aerospace Corporation because aerospace is the technical brains of the Air Force where in Kennedy we had civil service technical Air Force doesn't they move their people in and out so they didn't have that cadre of technical people so aerospace was formed by Congress to fill that niche and provide that technical support so we were still going to be flying the space shuttle had most of the problems behind us and the aerospace head at Vandenberg had a heart attack and died and I got a phone call saying if NASA gave you early retirement would you take that job and so I don't know who all worked that but I just had no choice but to say yes mm -hmm. so NASA gave me early retirement and I took over as the head of the aerospace corporation had a hundred guys who were to be the technical expertise for shuttle launch they were probably half of them were the same guys who had previously been launching Titans and Atlases and Deltas so that was a cadre available I got that job it was just happened to be the right guy at the right time mm -hmm. and there I was so that was really the deal until Challenger went down mm -hmm. when Challenger went down that was the end of shuttle but we'd already spent some four and a half billion dollars between mole and shuttle mm -hmm. that was everybody was still talking about where'd all this money go mm -hmm. and so we went through a period of a, close to a year after Challenger knowing that we were never going to fly from there going from a stand to a stand down mode where we kept contractors and maintained everything to a standby mode where we did a little less and a little less and eventually we wanted to abandon it but we had hypergolics in all those cross-country lines we had all kinds of stuff and so we spent millions of dollars backing out of that to get it where we could really just shut the gate and be done with it mm -hmm. meanwhile aerospace was back supporting the programs that were now back going again and so having spent 15 years on space shuttle i was very quickly learning titan 4 atlas delta mm -hmm. centaur the whole nine wow. yards all of yeah, that's yeah. on top of you yeah. know wow plus the spacecraft world that i'd never been involved in mm -hmm. so i had a pretty rapid learning process uh, when when the shuttle quit flying the nro spacecraft the very first the very next one was a Titan IV that uh, went downrange, got somewhere over the down downwhere over the islands, mm -hmm. and blew up, and went into the ocean. So everything stood down while we tried to figure out what was going on. And I'm I'm deer in the headlights with all that stuff, investigators <laughs> mm -hmm. and the whole nine yards. Went through all of that, went thoroughly through the Titan IV system. Finally, thought they knew what was wrong with it. So we put microscopes on the next one I mean this is my first real launch where I'm responsible we go through the whole thing and we are ultra careful the thing got 30 seconds off the pad and blew to smithereens wiped out the pad shut everything down mm -hmm. we ended up having to build a new pad and it was solid rocket motors again uh, they do wonderfully when they're working right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. But the one thing you know when it goes one the one time it goes yeah but I survived it, mm -hmm. and we went on to successfully fly Titan IIs, Titan IVs, uh, mm -hmm. Deltas, Atlases. Mm -hmm. uh, Lockheed flew there uh, uh, under the L-1011. Uh, oh, um, can't think of the name of it right at the moment. Anyway. You, you mean they, that they carry it under the aircraft? Yeah. Under the wing of the aircraft? Yeah, that, that was an interesting program that uh, uh, 
nobody had a lot of faith in it, but they, they got a lot of lightweight missions off eventually and uh, don't know that they're still flying. I haven't heard anything from them in quite a while. So now that you know you've fulfilled those projects, so did you basically when that that pad was kind of blown away, was that kind of a rebuild project for you, kind of to that build was a back? total rebuild, and uh, my guys were 100% involved in that, mm -hmm. and we not only rebuilt it, we redesigned it, mm -hmm. and of course the National Reconnaissance Office was anxious to fly, because the spacecraft that can do penetration photographing mm -hmm. uh, have to have cryogenic lenses they have to fly have to be have to be almost absolute zero for those lenses to work right mm -hmm. so they can only last so long in orbit mm -hmm. so you want to refurnish on a on a regular basis now the launch pad that can fly them is gone mm -hmm. so there was a massive push to get back flying mm -hmm. again and the concept that we ended up using to rebuild the launch tower and those are the height of a 20-story building. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, this isn't just a little bit of steel. Yeah. Uh, the way we ended up doing it was by having an outfit up in, I think it was in Oregon, uh, build the, tr the sections, brought them down on a barge to, a, to a, uh, a dock area that we had built for the external tank on the shuttle, mm -hmm. bring them down on, the dock on that, bring them up to the pad, put them on the pad, and then you bring the second one, and it turns out the way we do it, the top section is the first section you put on the pad and because you, there are no cranes mm -hmm. high enough to uh, do yeah. all that lifting. So we take the first one, put it on, and we jack it up. And when the second one comes in, you put it under it. Jack that up. You can build jacks any size you want, mm -hmm. but you can't get a crane that big. Mm -hmm. So jack it up. And so we build it top first, bottom last, and we got it done in something like a half of the time that any other proposals had come in. Oh wow! So the, yeah. that wow, that's a quick. Do you? That one was that was Space Launch Complex three, right, or four? Four. Four. Is that still in existence today? That it's still one? in existence. Uh, along with that failure, uh, one large chunk of the solid rocket motor fell at the same distance from the launch pad as our blockhouse was. The blockhouse was always on the pad mm -hmm. up to that point. And it was, of course, a reinforced concrete, the whole nine yards. But this particular segment fell exactly that same distance, but clocked a little different. Mm -hmm. So it made a hole in the ground and a fire, and that was it. But we had 80-some people in that blockhouse. And so I got a phone call that same day from the general who was in charge up at Vandenberg saying, put your guys to work on a remote launch control center. Take all of those signals that were hardwired into the blockhouse send them 15 miles north up to a remote place and we had to do that in parallel with rebuilding the the tower mm -hmm. and by the time the tower was built we had acceptable temporary facilities on north base to launch from those 80 people moved 15 miles away <laughs> that's that's quite interesting do you go around sometimes back over i mean I don't know, but I mean, do you reminisce on all the projects you've built and see and keep looking at, you know, like kind of, you know, you rebuilt Launch Complex 3, you know, all that technology and stuff. Do you ever like want to go back and look at it again or something like that? Or? My final experience as an employee mm -hmm. uh, was at the end uh, when we were we were flying successfully 
uh, all of the vehicles I just mentioned, and they were being flown under the government auspices. The government was contracting for the build of the hardware, for the crew that was launching the hardware, and somebody said, we're spending too much money on this. And a whole bunch of people who came out of garages and small businesses said, we can do it cheaper. So right about, uh, right about 89, 88, 89 came a big push, let's do space cheaper. So there were a number of companies that, uh, that tried to do that. Part of it was looking at how we contract with the contractors to do it differently. And uh, we did do some of that. Um, some of it was companies who just said, give us a shot. And so the government put a little seed money out for a whole bunch of different contractors. Uh, one of them that was notable to me personally was a company that uh, was going to build a solid rocket motor with thrust control. As, as you're probably aware, when you light a solid rocket motor, it goes until it you quits. Go, mm -hmm. And so if you want to abort, the only way to abort is to blow up that solid. Well, this company said, well, we'll put all the propellant in, but the way we'll burn it, we'll put a nozzle up in the head of it, and we'll spray liquid oxygen into there. And if we put a little liquid oxygen in, you'll get a little thrust. If we put a lot of liquid oxygen, you'll get a lot of thrust. Mm -hmm. So... They just tried that, and they built one full-scale, put it up in Vandenberg, and their fir first test, uh, everybody's, of course, everybody's got to watch this thing burn, you know. Mm -hmm. So they get out there, and they start it, and the smoke and fire come out. Everything's great, full thrust, and they go to, th they go to throttle down, and they can't change the nozzle throttle. So it burns full bore until the whole thing collapses <laughs> on the pad. It turns out that being people who hadn't gone through space before, they had bought their valves for liquid oxygen from a water company. Oh, so oh it, there was just a whole raft of those. Uh -huh. And it, along with that, there was a series of three failures in a row at the Cape over a short period of time and two at Vandenberg. And so whoever the president was at that time, I don't even remember, said, I want an investigation. Well, I got named to the investigation board. So I spent six months going around to contractors around the country along with another group of people. We wrote a final report that says this isn't how to do space. And the people all went away. And at the end of that, uh, I got a call that said, uh, said we're, we're setting up another team to do another job. Uh, can we put your name on it? And I said, forget it. I'm done. That's it. Mm -hmm. And I've never looked back. The only time I think about mm -hmm. either Vandenberg or the Cape time mm -hmm is that when I'm talking to somebody like you mm -hmm. or somebody who asks questions about it and I start thinking about it. Day to day, I can go for a month and never give one thought to it. <laughs> More fun playing. More, yes. So now let's talk about post, you know, post your, post your retirement now of all the space program. You have a thing for motorbikes and cars, right? That's what I heard. I do indeed. <laughs> yes. So what was your uh, first kind of restoration job well, um, when I was working for NASA I started rest restoring a 1918 Hudson touring car which I had bought when I got out of college 24 years earlier from an old farmer in South Carolina and as long as I worked for NASA we were always behind schedule and I never had time to do anything with it mm -hmm. uh, we were working 50 and 60 hours a week of the 10 people who joined NASA when I did I'm the only one that didn't get divorced within four years. Uh, NASA in those years ate you up. Really? Uh, 
So when I came out here and finally retired, I had several vehicles sitting back that I'd never been able to do anything with. So I finished restoring the, the 18 Hudson, uh, restored a, a 49 Indians motorcycle scout that I had had in my barn for quite a while, several smaller projects. And uh, I had owned since 1965, roughly, the remains of a 1925 Hispano Suiza Londelay. Uh, I bought it as a wreck out of out of out of a town near where I lived in Florida. Ned didn't know what it was even. No internet at that time, and I bought it for five hundred dollars because it was just a big old car. Shoved it back in my shop, and by the time I got some books to tell me what it was, I realized that I was not in the financial league I, to own one of them. Mm -hmm. So I shoved it in the back until I retired in 1999. And uh, I got a whole bunch of static from my kids, and they said, that's too nice a car to sit in the back of your shop. Either go to work on it or sell it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't bear to sell it, so I went to work on it. And uh, nine years later, I was able to show it at Pebble Beach and took a second. Took us. How, yeah, how that about is that? Amazing. that wow. is, that's truly amazing. And. I also want to know, how did you find out about Lion Air Museum? How did we get, you know, the opportunity for you to come over here? For, when was your first time visiting us? Uh, for the museum mm -hmm. here? Yeah. Uh, Royce Romsey. Um, when I first started showing my, my car, uh, we showed it, can't think where it was now, some, some big show up in the northern part of L.A. I can't remember what it was, but Royce was there, and we got acquainted. And we became friends, and we've been friends ever since, and have grown very close. Uh, I appreciate his photographic work incredibly. I love what he does. Mm -hmm. And he's been kind enough to photograph everything I've had, which mm -hmm. is kind of nice for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, through him, uh, three years ago, came down for the first time, Bikes and Bombers. Right. Uh, had my 11 race cycle, and uh, lightning struck, and I actually got the... Got the award for the People's, People's Choice, Choice Award. People's yeah. Choice Award. And uh, Mark gave me a flight in the T6, which thrilled me to tears. <laughs> uh, loved it. And with that experience, how could I not come back? Yes, right. They all got to come back. So you, you're back again for Bikes and Bombers. What did you bring this year for us? This year I brought a 1916 Excelsior with a Rogers sidecar. Uh, it's not... A restoration that you would normally see at a place like this. Mm -hmm. uh, the, plain, the claim to fame for that particular bike, it was restored 60 years ago by the co-founder of the Antique Motorcycle Club, which now has some 6,000 members across the world. Uh, and I had met him uh, while we both lived in Florida, and when he retired I was able to buy the motorcycle from him, and I have kept it pretty much the way he gave it to me, um, only fixing things that had to be fixed over the years and it still runs I have it here and we'll drive it tomorrow yay we're quite excited for that <laughs> so um, we are almost out of time but I just wanted to put it, put something out there you know sitting today um, when I got the when we got the opportunity that you were coming on to the show I was truly truly excited because I love the sp space industry and which actually was what leading which made me led to choose my degree right now for school is aerospace engineering. Great. So I'm quite excited. It was truly, really an honor to sit across from you today and to talk about 
you know, your involvement in all these programs. And it's truly been really special. As you go into that, you will have far less competition today than you would have had 40 years ago. (laughs) Really? So you should do well. (laughs) That's a fact. (laughs) Anything else you want to add, Dave, to? I think it's been a really interesting discussion. And, uh, yeah, my mind's been sitting here going through all the parallel paths I think that we've been on over the years and uh, with our fingers and toes touching all these different (laughs) projects and you know from my side of course uh, some involvements with uh, with uh, the Titan activity at uh, at uh, McDonnell Douglas and of course Delta and uh, of course on the shuttle program my former boss on the on the uh, International Space Station was Bob Thompson who Headed the uh, shuttle program. Uh, I love Bob. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's quite a hard taskmaster. I'll tell you that, uh, and and many other people you probably know. Uh, uh, my old friend George Fienza at the Cape, and Gene Spilger, and a lot of others that uh, I'm sure you met with uh, quite often, and I would see on my various trips back to the Cape for for launch activities and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, for me, it uh, it did bring back a lot of old memories, and so it's been an enjoyable interaction. Bob Thompson was one of my favorite people in my whole career. Uh, he was the program manager for Space Shuttle out of Houston, and under him, he had a group of orbiter people who were committed to orbiter and were heavily uh, astronaut-oriented. He, al- he also had... Uh, at Marshall Space Flight Center, he had the external tank program office and the solid rocket motor program office and, of course, Kennedy Space Center. And brothers tend to love each other but fight. Mm -hmm. And while there were no fist fights, the technical issues that got fought had something to win or lose for every party. And so the battles technically that went through during Bob Thompson's leadership I could not believe the way to which that man managed the program, kept the problems from getting overwrought, and somehow ended up with good decisions on everything, except when he would disagree with me sometimes. Well, I can tell you one of the techniques. Now, you may not want to keep this in your, your podcast okay. here, but uh, I can tell you one of the techniques that led to his success. And uh, what uh, what Don is talking about is the, the conflicts between center – uh, to center the center to center rivalries for one thing, they uh, there was always a, well wait a minute this is my job not yours mm-hmm. you know uh, so there are always interface conflicts like that, and to manage a program that cut across all of the NASA centers and do that su- successfully was certainly a, a miraculous thing to accomplish, but what was one of his techniques he would call a large meeting with all the principals and begin the meeting and let them argue or talk it out as long as they wanted to, but he would never call for a break. He never had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) And one by one, the competitors would give up. (laughs) Yeah. One of those inter-center issues that simmered for years, Marshall Space Flight Center always resented that Johnson had a big swimming pool where the where the astronauts could train underwater, and they couldn't find an equivalent that they could get that Mar- that Houston did not have, mm-hmm. and the Skylab program came along and Skylab was Marshall, 
they got a slightly bigger swimming pool. <laughs> My swimming pool is bigger than your swimming pool. How's that? <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, we've covered a lot, and I'm very thankful for to, for you to join us on our show today, and hope you have fun at Bikes and Bombers tomorrow, too. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure I will. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of On the Flight Line. I want to thank our co-host Dave Wensley and, of course, our special guest today, Mr. Don Nichols. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This has been Marcus Gropel with On the Flight Line. Till we meet again, and blue skies to you.